0: One, one, two, one, two. Now here we go. You know what time it is.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Frankie Lee Podcast. Our mission: to empower others to break patterns, flip perspectives, so that together
0: we have clarity, direction, and success way beyond what we ever previously thought possible. Here's your host, Frankie Lee. First things first, guys. Before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor and subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now whether that's youtube spotify apple podcasts i'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button and it lets me know that the content that i'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time much love this podcast is sponsored by content so whether you're looking to remove any images videos search results fake Instagram accounts. Get in touch with us at contentremoval.com. Welcome back to the Frankie Lee podcast. Today, guys, I am very, 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 very hyped to bring you this podcast today because obviously this is one of the first ones that we've done in the UK and we have none other than the founder of Reebok himself from zero to two and a half billion dollar valuation brand today, Mr. Joe Foster. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Frankie. It's a pleasure. It really is.
0: It's, it's, <laughs> it's nice to be here. It's, it's good. Yes. It's, it's good to have you. It's good to have you in my little humble abode in Pira. Uh,
1: we like it. We, as we said when we came in, this is our size of a bowl. This is beautiful. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I suppose a lot of people don't realise nowadays you're a digital nomad.
1: We are indeed. Yes. It's. Uh, we sold up in France. We, we lived in France, but uh, wrong place. Maybe wrong place. And uh, after COVID, we decided we'd move. But uh, then the book really came along and started to work. So uh, the book has taken us all over. So we're never bought again. We just now yeah. use, you know, you've got a computer, you've got a mobile phone or a smartphone. Where do you need to be?
0: Yeah, exactly. And we were talking about this in the garden, weren't we? Like, you know, you don't need to be in one location anymore these days. And the world is so, so close and with everything's going on. And now COVID's lifted and all that stuff, we can all get around the world and place ourselves wherever we need to be. And, you know not not only not only for for better tax optimization of business but also like for you know like you say give yourself lots of opportunities to do you're you're doing the speaking tour and everything like that and that's right and it's all going forward but i really want to with you. i really want to take it way back okay I really want to take it way back with you because I've, i really want to go into like what it was like for you growing up as a child in the uk at the time and kind of get kind of get a sense of 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 what you're looking at and what you're because I know it was your dad and your uncle originally that started what was J.W. Foster.
1: Well, you've got to go back a little, uh, quite a bit further than that. It was my grandfather. Your grandfather, yeah, yeah. yeah he was called Joe Foster, right? And he started, uh, he started. Well, his business started, really was set up in 1900, but he started making running shoes in 1895. He made himself a pair of running shoes in 1895. <laughs> Matt. Yeah. You guys, you guys
0: have been in the shoe game a hell of a long time. Well, indeed, yes.
1: Indeed. No, I mean, my grandfather, he was a bit of a genius because he, he invented the spike running shoe. And uh, I think he got his idea from his grandfather. His grandfather was a cobbler. Yeah. And as a cobbler, not only did he repair shoes, he also repaired cricket boots, specifically cricket boots, which had spikes in the bottom. And my grandfather, <clears throat> his father was a confectioner. My grandfather didn't want to be a confectioner. He wanted to be a cobbler. So we used to go and see his grandfather. And that's where he got his idea. And I'm sure he asked his grandfather, why have they got spikes at the bottom of these cricket boots? And we're pretty sure the answer was grip. It yeah. gives them grip. When they feel them, when they bat in or bowling, they need something. They don't want to slip. And that, that gave him his idea. Because he was, he was a member of his local athletics club. And uh, <clears throat> not one of the best runners in the world, He, but he enjoyed it. And he thought, if I put some spikes in the bottom of my shoes, will those give me more grip when I'm running on a cinder track? And they did, and that was it. And after making his shoes, instead of being sort of halfway down the field, he came a very unlikely second which drew a lot of attention, as you can imagine. Yeah, because so, obviously he wasn't he wasn't the most gifted runner, was he? No, he wasn't. So all his teammates were sort of looking at him suspiciously, like, is this cheating or are you going to make us a pair of these? So that was the start of his business. He made all his teammates run his shoes.
0: Is it something that he then went on and got the patent to and all that kind of stuff to so pr- protect it? <clears throat> or, did, or did he not file for those things in those days?
1: No, he didn't file for those things in those days. He, he was... Yeah his ambition was just to make some shoes and that was it, just to improve his running in fact you know, he thought if I could improve my running it'd be great and of course that became a business and yeah, it's difficult to know you know, whether he actually was the first one to put spikes in a pair of shoes that people ran in but he certainly uh, he certainly developed and pioneered the idea uh, and he is credited with inventing it, you know, if you go to the British Shoe Museum there they sort of, yes Joe Foster invented the spike run issue and he also invented the training shoe. So maybe we can accuse him of what we see today now that what he started has now become absolutely worldwide, global fashion.
0: So, so in terms of so your grandfather, then, is, is in essence, created the trainer. Yes. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Right.
1: It was way back. But of course, in those days, it was pure performance. And that that was the difference. It's just performance. Now it's street, and now it's fashion. Yeah. But in those days, it was purely performance. So, and he had influences. By 1904, he had three world records in his shoes. By uh, Alf Shrub was a guy. He he brought three world records in one event in at Ibrox Park, Glasgow, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, and that drove it obviously. Grandfather had given him a pair of shoes. I'm sure, and they and and what were these shoes actually called at the time? Uh, well, I don't know. At the time, there would be anything more than Foster's running pumps, right? Yeah, you know, they used to call them pumps in those days. Uh, but uh, I mean, eventually, we we know that the hand sewn running shoe were called Foster's Deluxe, so they became Deluxe, but. Uh, I'm sure they're just running shoes, running spikes. Um,
0: and when and when people started to set world records in in Foster's shoes and all that kind of stuff, did is that when you started to attract more and more attention to the brand and people wanted to start getting like sponsored by you and you know people wanted to wear your your track and
1: field shoes and start to compete in them in the Olympics and stuff like that. Well, a bit like that because you know we've got to go back now over 120 years, 130 years, and in those days we didn't have that sort of thinking, you know. If, he obviously knew how to influence people, but the word influencer probably wasn't even in the dictionary in those yeah, days. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, but he, he was an influencer. He, uh, he, uh, by 1908, he, he had uh, Olympic gold medals in London, so, and he would give leading athletes his shoes. You know, we, uh, we traced him back. When we started Reebok, we, we we became big enough to be able to spend some time and get somebody looking back on it. And uh, <clears throat> we used to go through all the magazines and papers, and Foster's used to advertise really sort of unbelievable advertising in those days. Uh, I think I can remember one being if you don't think that Foster's are the best spike running shoes you've ever worn, we'll give you £100. And, and that was unheard. That was, that was unheard of in those days. Absolutely unheard. Well, can you imagine 100 pounds in, in 1900? I mean, it's probably worth about ten thousand now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. probably so, a lot more than that. Yeah, actually, I'd uh, say. Yeah, an enormous amount of money. It's, uh, and of course, he. I don't think he ever gave 100 pounds to anybody. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, he he knew all about marketing. He knew how to uh, build his business, and I would say, globally. <clears throat> Partially globally, but mainly we'll say in those days the British Empire. So, yeah, Canada, Australia, all around Africa, everybody would buy Foster's shoes, and uh, <clears throat> so they because, went. They went really international then early on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Very early. He was uh, he was and certainly in, even in America, he was selling his shoes into America uh, because there was a magazine called Athletics Weekly. Yeah, and Athletics Weekly certainly in the Commonwealth just used to get sold all around the Commonwealth people wanted to know what was going on but it was specific to athletes but then what happened is uh, <clears throat> we'll say the African countries in particular they would use magazines like this to teach English and so all the kids would be reading this and Fosters would advertise in there and the, the advertisement at the bottom would be uh, write to us for our, our, uh, our brochure our illustrated brochure. And he used to get letters from all over the place just for the brochure. But it was, they were learning English. I don't think they wanted any running shoes, but they were learning English. And it and it's funny because, uh, I mean, I, I worked uh, at Foster's for about 12 months. Yeah. <clears throat> but one wall next to the desk was just covered in stamps because they used to take the stamps off all these letters and stick them on the wall. I wish I'd taken a photograph of it, but they were... Hundreds and hundreds of these stamps, uh, just from all these people that had written to you from all over the world. That's right. Yeah, and, and as I say, really, it was used uh, by the teachers as to give it to the kids, and it was just right there, uh, yeah, it's a, a way of learning English, and uh, but it was great. I mean, absolutely fantastic. It's, it's great that there's such a rich history with everything
0: that Fosters have done, you know, and it's gone through generations. Was uh, did, is it, it as for, fosters as a business? It, when you when you're a child and you're you're you looking at your, I think it was your dad and uncle that went on to run that business. Was it? Was it? I mean, uh, uh, from what I've read, your dad and uncle they, they never saw eye to eye on everything, <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything, <clears throat> Not everything, nothing. So yeah. eye to eye on nothing at all. So it's just like full on <laughs> arguments right the way through.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's difficult. I don't even know what to. To this day, it's why there was so sort of there was so such such a feud going on i don 't know what caused that there the were five years' difference in in age, yeah, and of course that uh, that doesn't help because they obviously didn't share many things at the same time but uh, i don't know we uh, <laughs> it's one of those things because i I went into the business. And you started up. what it was like when I was a youngster. Yeah. Well, I was born in 1935, only four years before World War II. Oh, so you lived all through that as well. So I lived the six years of uh, World War II, and uh, that was my child, really. From four years old to ten, we had a war. So education was a little bit sort of um, varied. Mother did quite a lot for us, and... Uh, the school that we should have been going to had been sort of taken over as a... I think they called them air raid posts in those days. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, people would probably be looked after if they got bombs or whatever. Because we, we lived uh, about 10 miles away from Manchester. And Manchester was a prime target. So we could, we could see all the red glow when... Air raids were on
0: because Manchester back in the day and probably still is was, was an industrial hub for, for, oh, yeah. for like all the all the shoemakers. <clears throat> There's a lot of shoemakers up there and everything, wasn't it?
1: Well, I think it was a lot of engineering. So engineering went on, and uh, the the made planes, of course. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a prime target anyway. So we, we could we had all that to put up with. So by the time I was ten. Then the lights came on again because we couldn't have any lights on. Everything was dark. And uh, the lights came on. Uh, I went to college, got an education, but and, and I joined the company when I was 17. 18 years old, though, uh, both Jeff and myself went to do national service. So we had two years of national service. So we left the company and went to do national service. and And it was that bit, doing national service. <clears throat> you know, mother's not there your dad 's not there mother well fathers weren 't there in those days anyway. you know they were never seen, yeah you know, fathers just went to work and then went to the pub <laughs> that was it almost every day or went out somewhere else and uh, so mother brought us up but uh, when you're when you 're doing national service you 're taken away from the family, so you 're making your own bed you know you, you have to handle things yourself and you, she's not making you food so you start to learn a little bit differently of how to look after yourself how to take the opportunities and so we when we came back to the to the factory we looked at it with different eyes you know we're, we're looking at and saying this is supposed to be a business why are you two falling out you know? so you kind of you kind of started to see more
0: opportunities within what you are going through because of the fact that you took yourself away from your mum and being cared for and now you had to stand on your own two feet so you come back you see this you see J.W. Foster with a hot in a whole new light to what you'd seen it before you'd, before you'd left
1: well absolutely uh, before you leave it's just part of your life when you come back it's your living it's, your, it's, it's this is where you're yeah. going to actually make the, the rest of your life or you're supposed to and uh, <clears throat> so we, we came back with fresh eyes and we sort of looked at uh, father and uncle and they're not speaking. In fact, Jeff and myself had to pull them apart on more than one occasion when they were fighting. What were some of the things that they'd fight over? That That is hard to say. Because, you know, the office, they'd be in the office and you just hear this ruckus going on. So we'd have to go down there. It uh, must have been something to do with the business. must have been the fact that uh, my uncle, he looked after the hand-sewn side. That's turnshoe you can only make so many of those so, I mean hand sewn it's, yes, it's a difficult process It's an art. It's an art. And it 100%. takes time and my father looked to the other side and started machine machine making the, the shoes sewing them together <coughs> but uh, so and, and they kept their own books Uncle Bill had his books for what he did and my father had his books just for what he did so what is the, it? They
0: were working on different hymn sheets, so to speak, from 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 those days. Like they were, That's right. they were literally like you know, the, his finances were kept over here for everything that he was doing. His finances were kept over here, and they
1: weren't really working together as a business. Essentially, what was happening? Oh, absolutely, there were two separate businesses within the same so, building. So, so, when you and Jeff came back, what what was it?
0: What, <clears throat> what was the clearest opportunity that you both saw that you don't think your father and
1: your uncle could see? Well, Jeff went to Germany. And Jeff, when in Germany he saw Adidas some Puma, he saw what they were doing. And when he came back and I came back and we were looking at what Fosters are doing, we said, look, you know, you should be making a more modern shoe. You know, you're making the same shoes you were making 10, 20, 30 years ago. You've got to change. And what, what
0: what were the what were the what were the shoes that Adidas and and, and those brands were making at that
1: time? Well, at that time, uh, I think mostly Foster shoes were either black or brown. Yeah. Um, and Adidas and Puma, they were making them in white and blue and red, so the colours were coming in. Right. And, okay. and, and different uh, different styles. Foster shoes were more or less one style, with just a bit of difference here and there. Different. Maybe at the quality of leathers and things like that, whereas uh, the uh, the pattern making of Adidas and Puma was different, and so they looked different. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we we were saying, "Come on, we've got we've got to get up to date." And also, I, I, Adidas in particular started to use a nylon sole with screw in screw in spikes, and of course, Fosters were still doing leather, still with the. Spikes which are sort of knocked through the soul, as it were, and a plate, plate to hold. It. In other words, the methods were—they were not moving forward with the methods. I just—it was just incredible that if you're not if you're not talking to each other, if you own a company like Foster's and you're not speaking, there's nothing's going to happen. It's so, just, so how did you go about healing that wound so that you could take the business forward? We didn't. We left the company. Right. Okay that's what happened we, we left JW Foss Jeff and myself left the company to start up our own company because we couldn't get them to change we had to do something so we left and we set up Mercury Sports Footwear
0: right okay okay and Mercury Sports Footcare, foot, Footwear was like just taking everything you'd learned from Adidas and implementing this new way of being in, in the UK
1: well we, we learned that we had to be different and we we had to modernise. We we learned that added did a change in what can we do. So we, we did quite a few of our own designing and changing things. Um, <clears throat> but the first thing we did, oh, before we left, we started to go to college at night just to learn. You, know, you could learn so much on the factory floor at Foster's. That's okay. You could make that shoe. But, you know, there's more to if you're going to change, if you're going to become more mechanised, more up-to-date, You've got to learn. So we went to college. Rossendale College was about uh, oh, 10 miles away from, from the factory or from Bolton where we lived. And so we went there. And the biggest thing that we picked up were friends. We got to know a lot of people in the shoemaking industry so that when we wanted anything, we could ask a question. Where do you get this from? Where do you get that from? <coughs> and that, that was great. Yeah, you know, that meant that we, we could fi- we could find things that fosters would never find because they never looked. You know, they they didn't see that. And so we, we made a a lot of friends who helped us. Helps us to pattern cut, helps us to do all the things that we couldn't learn on the floor at fosters.
0: So would you say then, Joe, one of the key things that you've learned from, from your early days is the fact that you know, the more contacts you can make in an industry and, uh, and uh, in in a place that you want to expand into, and the more sk- more skills that you can require, the better, so that you can best place yourself to grow in that in that space yourself.
1: Well, I think the one thing, the most important thing, is to really embed yourself in in the industry, know it, know it fully, get to know it, and people. They're so important. People have always been important as we grew the business. Get in the right people having people come to you is good. You know, advertising for people, okay, maybe on the factory floor, but to build a brand, you have to get people who think like you, who want to become part of your brand. So, yes. How did you build... go
0: about doing that though, Joe? How did you go about attracting the right talent because you knew you had something? How did you go about attracting the right talents so that you could take your ideas and, and, and get, the, get the right people on the bus? How did you go about building that in those days?
1: Well, I, I mean, it's... In those early days, it's pretty hard. But, uh, you know, Jeff was a member of the local athletics club. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it surprised you. There's lots of tradespeople in there. You know, we, we hardly ever had to do anything ourselves. You know, if we wanted some joinery doing, some plumbing doing, one of the athletes would come and do it for us. They, they'd love to do it. So you, you could be become part of the community. Once you become part of the community, the 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 running and cycling community, they just used to come to us Saturday mornings. You couldn't keep people away, whether they wanted to buy a shoe or not. They were they were coming around to the factory and you know, just trying to be helpful. And and I think the reason for that was that we were their age. We were part of you know, we weren't old and staid or whatever it is. We were young. We were we we were just you know, we were athletes at the same time that athletes were coming to us. So we were attracting people who you know, we'd spend time with, not just uh, sell shoes to. So we, a lot of people sort of became part of the Reebok community, whether they were uh, buying shoes or not. Buying shoes, yeah, they'd, they'd always buy the shoes from us. But you built a culture around it. But there was a culture of, uh, this is everybody's part of Reebok, and everybody felt a part of Reebok. and quite a lot of them then started to work for Reebok because we grew and we needed people. We needed people who felt, saying that we did, who had that heart, who had that love for the brand. So when you were Mercury,
0: how did you end up pivoting to go from Mercury to, to, to obviously come towards founding Reebok themselves?
1: Well, we didn't change the company, we just changed the name. And and what reason, was the reason behind that? Yeah. yeah the reason was that... Uh, We'd only been work, working this American for about 18 months. We liked the name. It was great, you know. We thought it was fantastic. And our accountant said, look, look, boys, you're doing well. You know, you're making a bit of money. You're doing okay. You better register your name. And uh, we are naive. You know, in our early 20s, what do you mean, register your name? Because Fosters obviously hadn't registered the name because it was their name. So we said, why? Well, he said, look, if if somebody else thinks that, uh, that these Mercury shoes are good and decide that they'll make some Mercury shoes because, you know, it's a good name or whatever, then you're going to have difficulty because you're going to have to prove that that's your name, not not someone name. else's, yep, yep. yeah. And they can't just use it. So you've got to register that. Oh, okay. So I said, okay, how do we do that? And he sent me along to a guy in Manchester who was a patent agent and the patent agent, uh, they sort of work with the registrar. Okay, so I, I went to see him and told him the story. Look, we've got to change our name, uh, Mercury. Uh, no, we've got to register our name, Mercury. And he, he looked this up, <coughs> and he found it was already registered. Lotus and Delta, which is part of British Shoe Corporation. They're big. And he'd also found out they were not using it. They got it registered, but we were not using it. Uh, <clears throat> and they'd, they'd said yes you know, you, your guys can have it for a thousand pounds but a thousand pounds in those days was a hell of a lot of money wasn't it <laughs> a lot of money yeah we'd just set up our factory for 250 pounds so a thousand whole factory a whole factory for £250. for 250 quid yeah yeah we we set it up for 250 quid what was
0: the average wage of a, of a man for a day there then
1: oh probably for a day yeah uh, I was thinking that for a week we'd probably be paying uh, ten or well, fifteen pounds a week. I would think, at the best, and you'd set
0: the whole factor for two hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, that's mad. Yeah, it isn't it. It is it, when you just just when you think about the how much more valuable money was back then. It just, <laughs> it just, it just, it just, it just yeah. like cause obviously they've printed a hell of a lot in in our economy now. so obviously it brought the value of money down tremendously.
1: Well, if you think about it, at that time, uh, we used to call a dollar five shillings. Which meant they were four dollars to the pound. Now it's about one twenty five to one hundred thirty. And you know, the pound has been devalued ever since I've been in business. The pound has been going down, down, down against all currencies. Um but so yeah, in those days, you know, two hundred and fifty pound, we could buy a machine for twenty pound.
0: So when you when you get hit with the fact of like you've got this you've got this Brand name now that you've obviously established a bit of uh, kudos in the market with, but you can't actually go and use it because you, you can't register it. What right. was what was the, what was the kind of process that you went through in terms of finding the name Reebok?
1: Well, I, I guess this was probably our first lesson in being entrepreneurs. Our first lesson of you know if you want to be in business, you, you've got to you've got to face some of the problems. And this was our first problem to face. And uh, so I <laughs> say I went to see the agent. And and the agent said, well, if you can't buy it, you've got to bring me 10 names. And I'm looking at him like, 10? Why 10? Well, he said, we've got to go through the process of testing this with the register. And and if you give me one, and it takes us two weeks, three weeks to go test it and find back, you can't have that. Or there's different problems. You'd have to, uh, you know, I think most names are difficult. Even if it's phonetics, yep. if it just sounds like it, you, you could get an objection. So you're you going through all these objections, and is that if you find that six of those names don't work, we're six months down the road, and you've still not got a name, so you, give me ten. Let's check. Let's check them all out. So I don't know if you've done this. Check, you know, sitting. Down yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What should we call it?
0: But 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 the, but the thing is, Joe, right? In the meantime, you're testing all these names. What are you calling the shoe in the, in the six to eight, ten months that you're out there in the
1: marketplace? Well, we, we didn't take that long. It, it had to be done quickly. It's said you know, two or three. We're still making Mercury. Yeah. We're still making that because the, the guys, the thing is that the guys who owned the, uh, the register, they were not worried about the fact that we were calling our shoes Mercury. That wasn't a problem for them. They had it registered, which meant that uh, we couldn't protect it. We could use it. But you can't protect it, so we could s- still keep on using our name, but it's not going to be any good for us long term because we couldn't protect it.
0: Did they not have a problem with you even using the name though? No,
1: no, because no because
0: most brands these days, if you had if you were using their name in the marketplace, they'd would sue you.
1: Yeah, but this this company is called Lotus and Delta. That's what they're selling under Lotus Lotus yeah. shoes. Yeah, and uh, the They'd probably registered it because one of their models, they'd probably call one model Mercury. Like you, you could call a car. Ours is called a Fiesta. You know, it's, it's, not, it's a Ford. Now, yeah. If we started using Ford and making cars, they, they would. That, you would soon stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. started making cars and calling them Fiesta. Today they'd probably stop you because now everybody knows names more. But we're, we're talking about shoes and the, using the name... I mean, we've been using it for nearly two years before we were told to uh, register it. So obviously, they not were, a problem at all. Yeah, no, there wasn't a problem, and I think that was the, that's the reason behind it. Is it wasn't a problem that we were using it; they weren't using it, so they didn't bother. But they had it registered, and we needed to register it so that nobody could use it now Against that we're us. using yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that was the difference, and. Uh, <clears throat> As I say, 10 names, how do you get 10 names? And You sit round the table and you're thinking, ah, oh, cougar, cougar sports, that's pretty good. Isn't it? Yeah. Falcon, falcon sports. You know, We were on the sort of birds, animals theme. But I've got to go back to 1943. 1943, middle of the war, I was eight years old. And just like COVID, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere. Seaside holidays were out because it was a war on you know, you couldn't get petrol. You couldn't. So, but they did sort of uh, local events, and I was entered into a 60-yard race, locally at Leverhulme Park, and uh, I won it. Oh, great! And one big advantage I would got Foster spikes. Can you imagine how many kids would have Foster spikes? Yeah. <laughs> In during the war. Yeah, nobody, yeah, hundred percent. Nobody. So. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a big advantage for me to win the race. Anyway, I win the race. And I go up to collect my prize. And uh, I get I get a dictionary. You know, and I'm sort of dictionary? Where where's the football? You know. Yay. I'm a kid, I'm eight. What do I want with a dictionary? So you get this at eight years old, this yes. dictionary. This dictionary, I use, and on top of that, it's a Webster's dictionary, which probably you don't know, but a Webster's dictionary is an American dictionary. It's so it's got all the different spellings, you know, like color without the U, yeah. and things like that. Ah, so, of course, probably in disgust, I probably flung it at one side when I went home and just got on with life. But now, fast forward to 1960, and I have this dictionary. It's there, sat by. I sign and I look at it and I think, hmm. now I love the letter R. For whatever reason, I don't know. R to me was like strong, strong letter to begin any, any word with. And so I opened my dictionary, at the letter R.
0: This is the first time you've opened this dictionary since you were eight years <laughs> no, old. No, I'd forgiven it.
1: Over <laughs> the years i would forgiven it and started using it for, for different various things. There. Yeah, But it was still a bit of a challenge because say, as an American dictionary, some of these spellings are quite a bit different. But no, I, it was there as part of what we, were, we had in the office and I opened the dictionary and I'm, and I'm thumbing through R. Ah, not long to get to R-E-E-B-O-K. Reebok, what's that? It's a small South African gazelle. A gazelle? Wow, we're a running company. Gazelle, running company. Fantastic. That'll do, that'll do us. And it's a good sounding name, Reebok. Sounds good. Put that at the top of the list. And I went back to the uh, patent agent. I've got your list. There's a ten, but I want that one. <laughs> I want Reebok. Uh, the rest, yeah, okay. But we can be in love with Reebok. We can be. That's got to be our passion. And of course, he's a lawyer. You know. Yeah. And as far as he was concerned, okay, Joe. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> right. I, I think it took a week, maybe ten days, before he came back having searched all these out. And he came back and said, uh, "The only one that's really clear. I've got two. There's just two minor problems with it. Yeah, uh, is Reebok." And I said, "Great. What, what's the problems? Now, one is uh, that Tootles have registered the name Railbrook. Oh yeah, Railbrook. Well, Reebok. He said it's phonetics. They've pretty much near Reebok Railbrook." Um, but this is Tootles name in men's shirts he said but they won't they won't complain because he said I'm their patent agent as well so <laughs> right great so no she so had a bit of an inside track there <laughs> yeah, you? yeah yeah we've got that's good the other one was Rebo and Rebo were ladies underwear and uh, he said I don't think that uh, they're really strong enough to bother about you so he said as far as I'm concerned he said you, you're clear to register the name right Name. He said, but he said, the registrar raised a point that if anybody comes to them and saying we're making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Okay, he said, because of that you go into the B section of the register. A register's a register. A section, B section. We said, look, so what? We're in the B section. Ten years later, the registrar came back to say we moved you to the A section. Oh, great! Why? He said because everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe, and they don't know it as an animal.
0: So they literally moved you, moved your distinction as yeah. Reebok, because more people now knew Reebok as a shoe than they did as, as the animal in, in as a gazelle. Yes, that's mad.
1: So no, that's random. how we became
0: Reebok. Do you remember some of the other names that you were, were contemplating having back in those days? Well, I do
1: remember those two, which was Falcon and Cougar. I, I do remember those, yes. Yeah. The others sort of... I think you know. Reebok's way better. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you made me Reebok. Well, you see, I mean, this is what we're talking about when you go going to the business. The first thing we learned uh, by finding Reebok, look, you can improve. A, a problem can become an advantage, with a problem, you can rework it so it works to your advantage. You, know, you can do these things. We were only four years into our business when we got a letter from the lawyers of Adidas.
0: And right? Yeah.
1: Well, in those days, we didn't have this arrow that we've got now. Right. Which is uh, called vector. Uh, we had two two bars and a T bar, so with the T bar across and two two stripes and T bar. And of course, Adidas have three stripes, and their letter said, "Look, we think that your, your your silhouette, your two two stripes and a T-bar, that infringes the Adidas three stripes." Well, I mean, Adidas big company. How,
0: how big? How big were they, Joe, when they were approaching you, and what what were you turning over at the time, roughly?
1: They were they were the number one sports brand globally, and our turnover probably about. Uh, Six hundred thousand, maybe seven hundred thousand pounds. That'll so you
0: get this legal letter, and they're yeah. and they're saying, "You look, change your logo, otherwise we're going to go you in court." That's right.
1: Yeah, and of course you know you you want this letter, and it's, oh, God, what are we going to do? Yeah, it doesn't take long before you think, just a minute, Adidas know we're here. us think we're a threat. So, you, so, yeah. you, so
0: you're, you're doing what I, what I believe most people should do you're seeing you're because see, you, you, you get two chances Joe to, on how you see things, you could have either seen that as a negative but you've seen it as a positive because you're like no no no, Adidas know about us now, they know we're here, they know we're in the marketplace they feel threatened by us yes. even though our turnover is nowhere near them they're coming to us with a legal letter so that shows we have something
1: absolutely, you know, that's great pin that on the wall a little letter which was pinned on the wall for a long time uh, I said what should we do? Oh, we'll change our silhouette. So what? That's the easy way to do it and we came up with the uh, vector which again is a better better it, silhouette. It, it was a betterment wasn't it? It was a, it was a total betterment of, of everything, yeah. the, everything that you're doing. That's right. It was a better silhouette than the than the two stripes and T-bar. So yeah, th- those are the early lessons that you think well problems are sent to improve your business, not to kill it.
0: Problems sent to improve your business, not to kill it. I love it. I love it. Because that, 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 that just shows you the essence of everything that what business is about. Because business, business like life, you've you got to go, go through a lot of adversities yes. that you think at that time, or you can, certain people can look at and be like, oh, you know, that's, you know, you can look at it from a bad perspective, can't you? But right. But in essence when you look through your life, things that you perceive as the worst things that ever happened to you often end up to be things that take you to whole
1: new levels of life and be it. Absolutely, because it teaches you that you know pivoting is the answer. You've got to move. Step sideways, whatever it is. Don't try and go through the barrier. There's a way around it. And that way is probably a better way than trying to climb over it or get through it. So it's like it teaches you to think a little bit differently outside the box. You know, just... Uh, yeah, we can make we can take this to our advantage because we have a letter from Adidas. <laughs> they're <laughs> lawyers. yeah, you know, they're speaking to us. They, they might not be speaking nice words, but they know they, we're they, here. They,
0: they know we're here. Yeah. So would you say then, from what you've learned in your years and years of business, that it's never about going over the obstacle or through the obstacle. It's always about taking a different direction at that point because that's where the growth
1: is. Well, I, I think it's it's... It's it's where the opportunity lies, you know. Going straight at something is not necessarily where the opportunity is. The opportunity is the other side of that obstacle. It's like, so why why try and go over it if you can go around it? Why, you know? The the I think the lesson for us was that, uh, like we say, uh, uh, a problem is an opportunity in disguise, whatever it is, and you've got to work out the way. This is like a puzzle. How can we do this? So we never we never worried about. Uh, Getting problems, we always thought, well somebody's paying attention, you know somebody's seeing we 're here we 're not just something that uh, you can dismiss us no they you know we're we 're serious now, and and every time you you get these problems, you grow a little, you know you grow yeah you know, well, yes, you know, how many footwear companies I have added us had to write letters to i don 't know, but you know they wrote to us, and uh, so for us it's yes it's it's a question of uh, said, so, right, I, you know, people people say we were you were we, uh, looking at Adidas like a, a competitor or Puma or Nike, and it was never that. We didn't look at them as competitors. We they were in the same sort of arena as we were, but we we were looking for the white space. You know, we're not looking to sort of go head-to-head with these guys. Oh, look, they're making this, we must make one. No, what, what can we make that possibly takes away that business? It's new, it's different. And uh, if you can make something different and new, look for the white spaces, that's where the business is. And originally, that's that was being in the north of England. The North of England, we have hills, we have fells, and we have fell running. They don't have fell running in Germany. So
0: there's a space. So you went so you went into these into these little niches. yeah, and, and 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 started to build specific shoes for these niches and started to build that
1: community and that culture around that. Around that, yeah, around the brand. <clears throat> it was like rugby league. Rugby league again, rugby union is played throughout the country, but rugby league is the north of England. Yeah. Okay. Game. So we got all the rugby league teams <clears throat> and we supplied them with with boots. So we we built, I mean, nearly every rugby league team in the north of England, I had them wearing our boots. So you know, the whole squad, yeah, the whole squad, all wearing
0: Reeboks. Yeah, and what what other what other um, key areas did you see as like opportune spaces to expand into that that maybe Nike and Adidas and Puma weren't
1: going into at the time? Well, there <clears throat> there's things like, uh, my 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 problem with expanding. Let me, put, let me also start with the fact that Jeff and myself started the company. Right. But Jeff loved the factory. Absolutely loved the factory. I didn't. If you've read the book, I think I start off with saying I'm a lousy shoemaker. I, I probably am. But Jeff loved the factory. and So Jeff, and we never had a harsh word between us. My father and uncle had never had a good word between them. We never had. Um, we were two years apart, but we never had a harsh word. And Jeff... He said, I'll look after the factory. Joe, you do everything else. And that suited you <laughs> down to the ground. That suited me, yes. It was a bit like lost everything else, but that meant building the business, sales, marketing, ideas, you know, those sort of things. That was more up my street. So, so I was more into uh, saying, well, how do we now build our sales? And uh, <clears throat> I thought, well, Foster's, they never had a salesman. I mean, these days, the sports trade, you don't have salesmen because now the retailers are so big, everybody's so big now they just talk to each other. Yep. In my day there's about two, maybe three sports shops, small ones in every town. Probably set up by an ex footballer. Yep. So you know, and this this is what happened in most of the towns. So I would go into these stores and say, I'm Reebok and the buyer the buyer was the owner. So yeah, probably an ex-footballer and oh right Reebok who's that I said well yeah <clears throat> look this is my product oh like those yes that's a nice product huh? yes, yes. but I get look I've got Adidas and um, I've got Dunlop why do I need Reebok that was, that was a question that hit me and I, after I'd had about half a dozen of that same question why do I need Reebok I gave up being a salesman. Uh, that's not. I'm not making any headway with the company because
0: why do they, they didn't
1: need Reebok? They had running shoes. They had training shoes. They had football boots. They had not Reebok, but they had the product. So <clears throat> I thought I've got to make them want me because at this moment of time they don't. Now we also used to go around to athletic meetings and we used to sell our products out of the back of the car. Yeah. And running was growing and people were running 5Ks and 10Ks and you see a couple of hundred and thinking, a minute. these are my customers. They are, this is who I should be selling to. Right. Now the, all the, at that time everybody belonged to a running club. The Auburn and these running clubs were affiliated to the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, <clears throat> and the three A's had a handbook. And every club it must have been three, four hundred clubs throughout the country. There was the name and address of the secretary of every club in this handbook. So you literally had all the contacts, your whole That's
0: database a, in one book. In one book, here,
1: <laughs> give them a letter to every secretary saying, uh, you know. We'll give you 15 anybody in the club will give 15 percent off uh, Reebok shoes uh, but if you'd uh, like if anybody in the club would like to be our agent, they can have the 15 percent right We'll say I send out 300 letters I get 100. I get a 100 agents off that first letter. then I followed up with another letter and I got another 50 agents. We ended up with getting about 200 agents throughout the UK <clears throat> and sales brilliant. So now you didn't have to go and se-
0: you didn't have to go sell anything. You just literally like you've got all your agents in the club. that just, they're just as affiliates of the brand that are just out there distributing and selling shoes within the club. Yeah. And then I suppose what happened there, Joe, was like that people, people then going into running shops and saying, Hey, do you sell Reeboks? Do you sell Reeboks? You got it. You got and, it. and then, and then that's, and that's how you, is that how you then got into all the stores and got moving across
1: all the All the stores like that Yeah Because what happened is I start getting phone Telephone calls Retailers in different uh, Sports shops Look I believe you're selling uh, You're selling direct to our Our club Your shoes And uh, I was yes Yes indeed Uh, Well I said uh, This was a general of tone. If you stop selling to them I'll stock your shoes Uh, Didn't take me long to think about it Because I said no because to me, <clears throat> to me, whilst this was selling the product, it was also our best marketing tool that we had.
0: Was, was them on people's feet running, a running clubs, right.
1: yeah, setting records. Yeah. So I said, look, <clears throat> I won't do that, but they're only getting 15% off. You would get them at wholesale price. And I'm sure you would give them 15% off. So you could do exactly what I'm doing. Uh, and we will advertise, we'll put your name on our advertising that you're a stockist. So, uh, but I'm not stopping selling direct. But a lot of people just prefer to come into your shop and try shoes on, whereas I've got to send them out by post. And you we know, we can, because in those days mail mail order wasn't that big a, a deal. I mean now it's everything. Yeah, direct to consumer yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think about ninety percent of them accepted that, and and that was good and our, <clears throat> by that time our sales were growing and by that time people were looking at us and uh, uh, and eventually i got a i got a company to distribute become our distributors throughout the uk so i could concentrate then on global so you, you picked you
0: picked a third party for the distribution in those early days as well
1: yes it <laughs> turned out to be a bit of a disaster <clears throat> what what did what did you learn then from
0: picking that third party distribution? Like what why was it such a disaster to you at that time? Well it
1: <clears throat> it shouldn't have been a disaster. <clears throat> and the the only reason that it did become a disaster <laughs> I can't do that and speakers, but the 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 reason why it uh kept a disaster is that a friend of mine, I mean this company, they just made football boots didn't make rug boots well? but they only made boots and we were making running shoes training shoes all the different things that uh, would sort of make a brand so this guy he was a friend <coughs> good friend and he said why don't you let us be a distributors that way we've, we've, we're offering a full range of stuff we're already going into sports shops we're selling <coughs> our football boots in there we could now sell your shoes as well made a lot of sense and uh, so, <clears throat> okay, you know, become my distributors. It took about eighteen months to two years before it fell apart. And the reason it fell apart is that uh, the guy who owned the business—he was getting on a bit. He was in his seventies, and he retired. And he put his son-in-law in charge of the business, who knew nothing at all about sports but, footwork. and, and about distribution. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. right. And unfortunately he and my friend Called Derek Shackleton Shack, They just didn't get on So my friend left the company And took the whole sales force with him And went to set up a sports division for Barter Well the guy didn't know where to go And so he made a couple of mistakes And within within 12 months it was going out of business. And, of course, it meant that he had, If first of all, it started, he it started sending shoes back because said, oh, they, uh, they're all the faulty and whatever. But we soon found out the problem was that he wasn't selling. You know, he had no salesman. His His business was just falling apart. So I got a van, went down to the factory and just picked up all our shoes again, about 2,000 pairs they had just brought them back to our our factory. And is that when Reebok started to distribute their own shoes? Well the biggest problem at that time was cash flow, we had none because all of a sudden well, we we couldn't make any more shoes, we had to cut our production Um, Reebok would be 80% of our factory I did make things for other people just,
0: just to keep that turnover going.
1: Well, you know, people come to you and say, "Will you make this? Can you make that?" And we made a climbing boot for Ellis Brigham. I don't know if you know Ellis Brigham. No, I don't know. Uh, they have about um, six or eight uh, outdoor stores. A bit like Blacks. I don't know if you know Blacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, Black's, like yeah. Blacks. Well, Brigham. It's called Ellis Brigham. And I, I, I knew him quite well. He he was just down the road in Manchester, and we were in Bolton. 10 miles away. So he came and um, asked if we could make a boot for him. So we made up this boot, just a rock climbing boot. <clears throat> so we, I'd, I'd, I was making a boot for him. We were making shoes for one or two other people as well, but 80% of our production, all, all of a sudden, gone. I had to lay off three quarters of the staff. So we had only a few staff left. And so when you say three quarters, how many staffs that well, It wouldn't be that many, probably up to 20. But it was enough at the time. That um, I bet that kind of hurt you as a, as a brand, someone oh. who's trying to build a brand. It Because
0: a lot of these people there, if there's 20 or 30 people there, you'd know them all first name. Know, of course, yeah. You yeah. know their families. You know yeah. they've got mortgages, all that stuff. I mean, how did, you, how did you kind of feel about that yourself?
1: We felt pretty bad about it. But, you know, they don't, a lot of them said, look, we'll work for nothing. And and the other said Look when when you get over this Can we come back (coughs) And I was saying Well if we get over it Yes No question on that But our biggest problem Was selling all these shoes And again it was a matter of saying Okay I want to do it So we we went round to all the schools Within about a 50 mile radius Got to know, know the PE teacher And said Look you can sell these shoes To your kids at this price And that was very They were half the price you you would, of, you would of get anywhere else yeah, yeah, yeah. That you could get them in any shops, but we had to sell uh but even then, at half the price, we were getting more than we than we were getting from the wholesaler you know through our distributor we were getting more of that um it took about two three months, and we cleared all the all the shoes and we'd got more money, so we got all our money back, but also what happened <clears throat> i talk talking about before earlier, making friends. My friend who had been at the – at our distributors had gone to Barter, he came up, he knew what had happened and said, look, can you make me 200 pairs a week of this, of a shoe, designed a shoe? So he gave me an order for 200 pairs. Another one in Leeds, uh, Stylo Shoes, you probably won't know them. I don't know. They they wanted 200 pairs a week. So I got three or four. of friends, of retailers who just came out of the woodwork and said Joe, we're not your problem, we'd love to get some of your shoes, because we, we were quite the envy of, retail, of of that sort of trade the, the sports goods trade the, not football boots, but certainly the athletics side of it we were quite the envy of a lot of people they, they loved our product, and of course we were selling under Reebok they were happy to buy from us our manufacturing under their name yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, within three months, not only had we sold all the shoes off, we'd also got the factory busy again. And, then and, you've, and you're now able to employ back all those staff that we you had We employed all the people back again. But another thing that happened is the fact that we were so well-known and the fact that this had happened, that another distributor, a, a different distributor, came back to us within, say, six, 12 weeks and, and said, can we be your distributor? So... I made a different deal. <laughs> and yes, they became the distributors for the UK, um, which again then started to absorb our production. So from almost disaster, we were back up and running within three months at full strength. In fact, we were, we were a bit bigger because I'm still making shoes for these other people. Yeah. So we'd actually grown out of it, uh, which was great. Did, Did you know? have to then expand the factory then because you took on all this extra production? Um, we we expanded a bit, but there's only so much we could do with expanding the factory because my uh, my understanding of it is that we'll never ever be a big company. Like Foster's were never a big company because <clears throat> you need to do more. In those days, you need, needed to do more than just make sports shoes. We would have needed to be in football, but football was already tied up with the ideas. That would have been a hard game to get into. So... My thinking was not so much that we uh, we expand our production, but we we go to America, we find a bigger market, and if we find a bigger market, we would then probably have other people make our shoes, barter. They were ready; they they would make shoes for us if if uh, if we wanted our product. So it was a matter of building the name Reebok and the strength of that name. So. Uh, I decided, well, I'd wanted to go to America and test the market out there because it's a big market. Yeah, it's a nice pond yeah. to play in. Yeah, it's massive by comparison to the UK. We, uh, and in terms of uh, numbers, if you put America at 100, the next biggest market was Japan at about 30. And then I think Germany was 25 and the UK about 18. You know, that was our size of market that we were dealing with. And... Uh, <clears throat> Luckily for me, I'm reading a magazine and the, the government were advertising it and they were saying, look, uh, we'd like you to advertise, we'd like you to export, sorry, and we would we will pay for your stand at the NSGA show in Chicago, that's the National Sporting Goods of America, we'll pay for your stand, we'll pay for your return airfare and we'll pay for half of your uh, expenditure, well, your hotel bills, etc. Uh, well... It's a gift. A lot it's lot an opportunity. Gift, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You know, when when luck comes, luck comes, <clears throat> and that was lucky. But this was nineteen sixty-eight, and I'm trying to get into America. Uh, I didn't get in there until nineteen seventy-nine. Why? Why did it take you so long to get to break into American market? Well, <clears throat> American market is a big market. You know, you can think, uh, how do you get everybody in the UK to know your product well? If you go back, yes, we had Athletics weekly. we had some uh, magazines that we could advertise in, but to get everybody to sort of know, I needed to get into all the sports shops. Now i would got into the sports shops. How do I get into the sports shops in America? I, 1968, I'm there in Chicago, and I don't advise you to go there in February. It's not the right time. Not, not the it. right time to go to Chicago? No, in Chicago, no. So... Uh, and again, the guys, they look at and say, well, it's a great product. Where do we get your product from? And I'm saying England. Oh, England, yeah. Is that, is that New England? No, it's not New England. No, it's England, you know, over the water, Europe. Oh, near London. Yeah, near London. And it was like, well, oh, look, guys, you get somebody over here. We can buy them over here. We'll, we'll certainly try you. But product. you have to be over here. You have to be over here. You have to have a distributor. And so I had six failed attempts at getting a distributor. They tried it, it
0: what didn't work. What, what, was the key, what was the key element that was making it fall down over there, Joe, in terms of like, what were these distributors, in your opinion, doing wrong that was stopping and breaking into that
1: market for so long? Well, I, th- I think that why it didn't work is the fact that it was the same as when I went to the retailer. I went to my retailer and they'd say, Reebok, who's Reebok? Why do I need Reebok? So you said so no one knew who you were. Yeah, you know, it's like, how do you get people to accept that? Okay, we were, we were selling the odd to the odd, I um, uh, the uh, Rogers, um, some of the top athletes. Frank Shorter actually bought some shoes. I mean, he was a top athlete in America. We actually, Ron Hill won the Boston Marathon in record time in our shoes. But it's getting that message out but the big thing that changed is that right from the beginning of the seventies, probably late sixties, running became an item in America. People wanted to get fit, and running was simple—just a pair of shoes, out you go. By nineteen seventy-five, running was big, and with it was a magazine. The magazine started at late sixties as a single page that was Runners World, right. started as a single A4 sheet. By 75, it's 50 pages of colour and everything you needed to know about running, where to go, who won the last races, where the last races were, where the next races are. So everybody running buys the magazine. Well, in America, you'd got 350 million people, and probably 10% of those at that time were out running. they have got per trainers, and they were out running and doing 5Ks, 10Ks, you name it, and... uh, Runner's World. They all bought Runner's World, and Bob Anderson. He uh, he was the publisher of Runner's World, and he uh, he decided because I mean he was a big influence. He decided to tell everybody which was the number one run issue. Well, great, Nike, of course, number one run issue. Well, if you if we're saying that ten percent of the Americans, uh, three hundred sixty three, maybe thirty five million are now running. 10% yeah. of those would probably want to get the number one shoe. The Americans are like that. So 10% yeah, yeah, yeah. want the number one shoe. Three, three and Three and a half million people all of a sudden want that shoe. And Phil Knight, Nike, Phil Knight, he's importing his shoes, of course, from Japan. Had he got any chance of fulfilling those orders? No. Not he's, a chance. No chance. No chance. You couldn't just turn up the quantities in in no time. You know, it couldn't happen. 12 months later, when the quantities started to come through, well... Bob Anderson decides, well, you know, we've got to do this every year and find out which is the number one shoe. So he has a different number one shoe. This time, it's I think it's a New Balance or Brooks, or whatever. So of course, all of a sudden, people want that shoe, and so the demand for the Nike shoe goes off just as the product's coming in. So the retail trade—you can imagine what the retail sports shops were thinking. This is madness. Now, either Bob. Anderson or somebody told him, This is not working. You know, you you created havoc. So he changed it. Instead of doing number one shoe, he changed us to star ratings. So a five star shoe. If you had a five star shoe and you could have four or five, that was the top. So there could right. be four or five. <clears throat> and I knew at the time we could make a five star shoe. Making a number one shoe that was a bit of a lottery. You know, it depends on what his choice would but be. But you knew you could land one on the five stars. We knew we could make a five-star shoe. And we did. And that's what got us in. Aztec. Aztec was our five-star shoe. Um, but I've been, in 1978, I was at the NSGA show again, turning up. And running, being that big, now Kmart, out to a big retailer. Massive minute. in Australia too, <clears> yeah. 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 And they came up and said, we want 25,000 perks of uh, Reebok. Bit of a gamble because, you know, we were just a name, but uh, we hadn't made any big headways in America at all by then. So uh, and uh, at that point we hadn't got a five. Well, we had a five star shoe in my mind, but it obviously wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't, wasn't signed a, off five uh, star. Not signed off by Runners World, and uh, so I said twenty five thousand. That's right, fantastic. And I, I knew if we did get a five star shoe. That we want help, and this is where my friend in Barter now. He was happy. He You know, yeah, we'll we'll make the shoes for you. Twenty-five thousand pounds. Yeah, that would be good. We can do that. But then came out and said, "Yeah, but we uh, we need a better price." um uh, we knew what a better price meant. That meant going to South Korea because they could do them at half the price that we could do them, or less than half the price. So. Again, I did realise that if we were going to get into this game properly we would need to go to Asia, we need to get to South Korea. So I'd already made uh, made acquaintance of uh, the rep or the, uh, the company that represented the uh, South Korean, big South Korean group. So we were in with them and I thought okay, well, we can do that. Was it hard for you to to let go of
0: UK manufacturing?
1: Well in a sense, you don't leave let go of UK manufacturing. What you're doing is you, you're keeping that small factory to do with specials, you know, doing yeah. different things. And we were looking now at a different market. We were looking at this training market, you know, the training shoes, people just going out running on the roads, nothing to do with spikes, spike track shoes or track and field event shoes, you know, and we were doing those still in our small factory. It's if you're moving into the big production. You know, you can't build a factory just like that. It can't happen overnight. But those factories were there in, in South Korea. <coughs> so I knew if, if we got the five-star shoe, we would need uh, help. And uh, at the same same show in uh, 1978, Paul Feynman came along. Well, was 1979, yeah, 1979. Paul Feynman came along and said, <coughs> Joe, I'd love to be a distributor. He He ran a small wholesaler, Boston Camping they were called, and they made or well, they sold tents ground sheets, fishing rods, you name it and uh, I got on well with Paul it was only a small business, and I think they'd been doing the same business for about 10 years not making any headway to I could see he was a bit fed up with it and Paul said, Joe you get a 5 star shoe and I'll be your distributor this is February, the shoe uh, the shoe edition doesn't come out till August so okay, <coughs> so uh, we all go back home. I go to America in May. I think it was May or June. I went to see Kmart and saw the guy who said he wanted twenty five thousand birds, per- He still wanted twenty five thousand per but I was sent from reception. I was sent to this room with about sixty desks with old buyers, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is just one small piece of this operation, and if if the sales don't Stand up to whatever they expect out of a square metre. That would be my first and last order for 25,000 pairs. That would be it. So I went along to Boston to see Paul. And uh, he's there. Uh, he's running this company with his brother and his brother-in-law. And it's small. It's nice. And they have sales team. I'm thinking, yeah, it's It'd be, nice. be a nice bolt-on here. So the last week in July... That's when the August edition of Runners World comes out and we're waiting. And I phoned Paul and said, Paul, just go down to the kiosk, will you? And just see if the Runners World's out now and see how we did. Uh, an hour later, he comes back. and said, Joe, Aztec, you got it. Five stars. We got five stars. I said, but not only that. Your, uh, your tracks back, Inca, that got five stars. And also your... Midas, your racing shoe that got five stars. So that was the difference. With three five stars, that pulled us into America. We were, we got it on the hook. That, and what, and what was, was the and when they said? So what was the first order of shoe after
0: that twenty five thousand initial? What was the first order? For, what was the volume after that?
1: Well, Paul places his orders with uh, with because they Barter could actually make the shoes. Straight away going into Korea was good, and he ordered twenty thousand pairs. Wow. So, and he almost got twenty five. He ordered twenty thousand pairs. Yeah, if you read the book, you find out it was quite a disaster, and yet in a way, it worked. They they got things wrong, and uh, <laughs> you need to read that story. It's, it's amusing, but uh, at the same time, he, Paul never paid for the shoes. 'Cause the deal was direct between Barter and Paul. I right. didn't I didn't get in the in the way of it. I would just get my royalties out of that.
0: But right. So that that's when Reebok started to to, to sell shoes at, like with royalty payments rather than manufacturing yes. them on
1: themselves. Yeah. So more this is where you went into more licensing agreements then? Um we didn't well, it depends whether you call them, licensing agreement. Probably yes. That's distribution agreements. So we made distributors. So we got distributors around the world after after America, but we needed America to start and really start to grow. So when you sell
0: um, and when you package some form of distribution as a shoemaker, as a as a as a, as a brand like Reebok, do you, do, you, do you Then obviously you you design and you create this classic shoe here that I'm yes. wearing right now. Yes. You, you you design it. You you approve that you, you approve that in your little factory. You send that over to to America, and then you license them to be able to go and make that and get that get that sewn anywhere. So you yes. send all. You you send when you set, when you when you're setting up a brand like that and distributing that do you send them like a, a what is it like a
1: like a a, a CAD drawing of a, of a shoe and how it's put together and they, and then they manufacture it or how does that work Well, in those days we didn't have CAD drawings. It's, you know, and computers weren't even known in the early eighties. You, know, you know, yeah, the early eighties. You know, we didn't have computer. work. Computers were very. It's quite new when you think about it. Computers.
0: So how do you um, how do you then quality control, Joe? That when you are when you are putting this into America, that this that if I bought a pair of Reeboks in America and a pair of Reeboks in the UK and a pair of Reeboks somewhere else, how do I know that even though they're all made in different factories by different by different distributors, how do I how do we how do we get
1: the same shoe? Well, the licensing process is twofold. One is your distributor who's going to be selling the shoes. Yeah. The other one is a manufacturer who's going to be making them and they both have to have an agreement. They both have to have paperwork. Yeah. And you get the manufacturer to... You actually show them how to do it. They make a shoe, a pair of shoes. They call them sealed samples. They go into a plastic bag. They've got all the description, all the different things that you've used, whatever it is, all the specifications. The bag is sealed. They keep one, and... Your distributor keeps the other one, so that when when the product comes out, it's got to be to that specification and it's got to look like that shoe. So that's how they, that's how they guaranteed it in those days, yep. in terms of like that. That's to be. They, exactly. still, they still do it today. Really, sealed samples are still the thing that happens today. And once you've made it, you've got your spec on it. The whole thing is there and it's sealed up, so that you've got one shoe and they've got the other shoe.
0: And this is for every order. So if I ordered twenty five thousand pieces of those to be made. You'd get a seal sample. I'd have a seal sample, and then, and then, I, when I get the twenty-five thousand pieces turn up and land on land in, yeah. the, in the shipment, I can check my seal sample against those shoes against the production. Yes, right. I love that. I yeah. love that. So simple, but it's, it, it kind of like guarantees the quality.
1: Absolutely, because if anything goes wrong, you you can just get to your seal sample and you compare it. Right. And this is this is what uh, Barter did wrong. Uh, Barter being a shoemaker. Not a sports shoemaker. There's a big difference, and uh, as you can see, the shape on the on the face in here. Yeah. What Barter did, because they're looking at time, motion, what's quicker. They they rounded this. They made this round, so the machinist could just saw round it
0: instead of two instead of two separate side pieces.
1: Slow down and yeah, so. <clears throat> takes longer to sew a facing on like this this is a facing <clears throat> takes longer than, than something which is very simple and round, but it changes the look of the shoe as soon as you do that. it changes the whole look of the shoe, which uh, is what they did and that was one of the reasons that they uh, that, that Paul farmer didn 't pay for the product. The other one was that this midsole here is called e v a and e v a at that time was very very new. What does e v a mean it's um vinyl I forgot what it is. It's an expanded vinyl acetate, I think it E V A expanded yeah, yeah. vinyl acetate. And
0: this was the new form of soul in those days, right?
1: <coughs> it was new because it's not rubber. It's a plastic. Right. And uh it's sorry, but Barta were that big as a as a company. They had their own rubber factory. So they produce their own rubber. And this these things are produced in rubber factories, but they hadn't produced e v a before and so they started to make e v a probably ninety percent of it was good, but ten percent was uncured, so that when it when it compressed it stayed compressed, it just flattened so every i mean a lot of shoes would be made in that ten percent um, what happened is that when they got to America and America sent them, Paul Feynman's getting shoes back. Right, okay. And uh, I hadn't seen the production, uh, but uh, not only had they change the, the appearance, they had this problem with the EVA. It was collapsing. Yeah. And Paul Feynman's having to just send shoes out. And he, his decision was, okay, not everything's coming back. So I'll just exchange them. No questions. So we were exchanging shoes, and uh, when it came to paying for the shoes, yeah, I keep losing that. Yeah, when it came to paying for the shoes, Paul came over and we went down to barter and met up with the guy who had that. And said he wanted to sort of say, "Look, we'll let you have half price." <laughs> and Paul said, "No, I'm not paying for one of these. I'm not paying you at all because you've almost ruined my business." <laughs> Well, it, it, I mean, it almost ruined Reebok. It wouldn't had it been anywhere else but America. Or the because the
0: Americans didn't know
1: the style, so they couldn't pick that. They they couldn't pick that fault from the sewing. Well, they not only didn't know the style, the the American attitude to things is: it's new, it's different. Give it a try. Don't worry about it. If if it fails or whatever, we'll try it again. You know, in, in the UK, if something like that happens, everybody. Just gives Washing you a bad your, name. Washes your hands. Yes, you. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But over there it didn't. And so, Paul, Paul, family got twenty thousand pairs of shoes and didn't pay. So that allowed you a little bit more cash flow to launch even bigger in the market. It allowed it allowed time for us to get career online and and working, uh, and keep keep Paul satisfying his customers and when you and
0: when you get a when you get a factory like in career that can make shoes i mean how many how many what's the
1: kind of volume can a can can a factory like that turn out for you well I'm just saying they, they call them production lines, and I think in a production line they had to make i think it's a thousand pounds a day, so you had to be able to order enough for a thousand pounds a day for a production line so if you wanted a production line, you could have a day on a production line and that means you've got a thousand pairs. so you multiply up your days, and you multiply production lines. Yeah. So if a factory has ten production lines, and and he's working for two hundred days, you multiply that's about two million or whatever it is yeah, yeah, pairs of yeah, yeah. shoes. There's a lot of a lot of footwear, but you, that's how they sell the they sell the production line. When you when you're going into a new market like America or any new
0: market, how do you calculate or forecast how many pairs you're going to sell? We don't.
1: The distributor has to. The and, guy you go to right. you 're going to get a license to he has to come up with what he 's going to sell it 's not up to us; he knows his market. and he 's just put and he 's just trying to he 's just trying to judge that on what he's previously sold so he so, yeah, so, so, yeah. So really then, no one has a clue really, not really because you know it 's like anything else if you 're a, a very well known brand and you 've been there for a long time uh maybe maybe you 've got some idea, but otherwise it's just a matter of uh Sticking your finger in the air and which way's the wind blowing? <laughs> so, because I'm sure I read somewhere that after
0: after you'd been in America a while, didn't you and didn't you and Phil Knight who had who had Nike, didn't you have a bit
1: of a to do or something like that? <laughs> uh, probably after I retired, that it, it certainly wasn't with me and Phil Knight. I, I think uh, <clears throat> I know that I what made Reebok grow. What made Reebok grow was aerobics. Right. Not not running, yeah. I aerobics happened because uh, our guy who was a tech rep down in Los Angeles, Arnold Martinez, Arnold, his his wife, his wife was going to aerobic classes and coming back absolutely full of it. And Arnold was saying to Frankie, he said, Frankie, what are you doing? It's aerobics. What's that? Well, it's exercise into music. Really? really? Yes." Yeah. And they were full of it, loved it. And Arnold went to the next uh, session and he saw the uh, he saw the instructor in a pair of sneakers. We'd think they were new balance. Half the class were in the same sneaker. Uh, the other half were wearing no shoes at all. And that's where Arnold got this idea. Why don't we make a specific shoe for these girls? <coughs> so just on women's sizes, on a woman's last, make it out of glove leather. And uh, wow! Well, so he went up. He's in Los Angeles. He went up to see Paul Feynman in Boston. That's a, an overnight flight. And he sits with Paul, and he's telling Paul, "Fantastic! This all that's going on." And Paul's saying, "Slow down, Ooh, Arnold. Slow down. You know, why do we want to be making dancing shoes? We're a running shoe company." And uh, no matter what Arnold said, if Paul was into sort of yeah, we'll keep our eye on it, but you know, let's not get too excited at this point because few girls dancing on, down there in uh, in Los Angeles. Arnold went out to the back door and had a word with Steve Ligon. Yeah, and he had more. Uh, he convinced Steve more than he did do Paul that we should be ch- we should be doing this, and uh, Steve got him some samples. I think about two hundred pairs samples, and he got them down there in, in LA. Gave them to the instructors, and. Uh, a lot of the leading girls down there, and they loved them. they just loved the shoes they loved the shoes that they were wearing the shoes to uh, to work you know they would just put them on they were so comfortable
0: is is this what is this is this where you first came up with the classic the,
1: the real classic classic came later right okay okay yeah, it was the aerobic shoe it was made out of glove leather, which was a mistake in one way, just because of how it wasn't very well wearing Exactly <laughs> yeah it was Glove leather's 0.7 of a millimetre thick. Yeah. 0.7 of a millimetre, if you've got sort of that in your mind. That's very thin. And uh, and then you have to take some of the surface off in order for the adhesive to stick. Yeah. And uh, so it takes it down to half a millimetre. By that time, there's hardly anything there. So wear it for a short while and wear it worse down at the... Bottom of the upper there where it meets the sole It starts to bend and it just breaks away So That didn't work And uh, I didn't know they were making them out of glove leather Until Somebody said we've got a problem oh, Why You shouldn't be making shoes out of glove leather And and on saying that We did Reebok made shoes out of glove leather But we made we reversed it So we, we just used it on suede So on the reverse side was suede and so you didn't have to take anything of the substance away. Right, okay, okay, right? okay, yeah, 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 And so we used sweared, but now now they were using the grain side and uh, having to take that off. That was disaster. Uh, so I said, You don't do that. Well we it. so what did they do? They lined it with nylon. Uh, I said, You can't line it with nylon because leather breathes. You know, you getting people up there, they they're doing a workout and they get it hot. Leather breathes, nylon doesn't. So, what did they do? They punched holes in the front, like we've got in the front here. It's now become a style, but they punched a nice set of holes in the front to allow the leather, the leather and the, the nylon, nylon
0: to breathe yeah, together. To, to breathe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. which just proves that marketing knows more than shoemaking. You know, <laughs> it was a marketing decision to do these things. So, th- the, so
0: that was literally a marketing decision, so that you could you could then put yeah. more shoes out. Yeah. Without having to change the build,
1: well, without changing the leather. Eventually, the leather changed, and we got thicker leather, more like garment leather, so that they could they could actually work on it without putting the nylon at the back. So, yeah, and of course, what happened then? We were a nine a nine million dollar business at the time in America. In five years' time, <clears throat> I mean, just under five years' time, we've gone from uh, nine million to thirty million to ninety million to three hundred million. To 900 million. You, so.
0: you sh- hold on. You've gone from 9 million yeah. to 900 million yeah. in five years yeah. in America. In America. From yeah. from your aerobic shoe alone.
1: Yeah. Well, the rest was in there, but the aerobic shoe was the big one. I mean, that that's the thing that really took off. And that, that's what gave, made Reebok.
0: And in terms of volume, Joe, with that, from 9 million to 900 million, yeah. what's the volume change on the amount of shoes you're putting out?
1: Well, this is this is the problem. It wasn't too bit, too bad to get up to three hundred million as, as revenue, but to get from three hundred million to nine hundred million, that's tripling your uh, your production needs, and we would never done that, but for the fact that uh, uh, Nike Nike hit a wall. All of a sudden, Nike hit this problem. They uh, they been growing fast, and they had to pull out of three factories. So that's how we managed to get the volume. The so effect. you
0: you 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 jumped into Nike's old factories. That's right. Yeah, and and managed and managed and managed to use them to produce to produce this this aerobic shoe and a tape. See so, see so most most businesses say that expanding at the top end is easier than expanding at the bottom end. But you just said that it was it was it was that much harder going from three hundred to to nine
1: hundred. Well, it's not hard in in as much as the fact that you can sell them all. You know, th- this was not, nothing to do with selling. The demand was there. The demand was absolutely incredible. So what the problem was is getting the production, increasing the production over such a short time. As I said earlier, with, uh, with Nike, when they got the number one from Runner's World, and he's importing these from Japan, he had no chance. No, he couldn't get the increase in production because right, yeah, the factory yeah, yeah. couldn't increase that quickly. You have to move out of factory to factory. So it's, and it, that sort of process takes a while. So in essence then, because of
0: the way that you'd built Reebok compared to the way Nike had built, had built, their, built their brand, that y- you had access to more production than they had?
1: Well, not, no, I don't think we had access to more production because Nike had never made a shoe. They always imported you know they used to be the uh tiger. Oh, so so, yeah.
0: so i didn't so i didn't realize yeah. so so basically they were just using tiger to produce the nike shoe and they were yes. just and they just created the brand that slaps on the front of it yes, yes. So, so so is is nike is, was nike then from from concept just just a brand
1: that was like a marketing brand put on top of a shoe then yes just a marketing brand they, uh, they well i think it was bill borman as as well as phil knight but probably bill borman actually did the uh did the work of designing a shoe Yeah, okay? they just designed and the waffle sole became something that uh, bill bowman they, they wanted that and nike on its suker as a company they uh they just didn't want to be bothered no you're selling tiger you know we don't want to be bothered you're not designing our shoes we designed them so but they got them and said well okay then this you know this is our shoe we want now we want our our name on it and they, I think somebody came up with the idea of Nike because they were blue ribbon sports, blue ribbon sports in America were selling Tiger, right? But <clears throat> because uh, because Tiger just didn't want to be told how to make shoes, they did make the shoe that uh, Blue Ribbon wanted, but of course they had to put their own name on it, and they came up with Nike, put Nike it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. put Nike on it. So that's how they started. They never they never made shoes. They've got technicians now they only employ a lot of technicians because they're a $25 billion company now. You know, they're really big. Yeah. And so they have all the technicians you, you need who would now go out to whatever country they're making shoes in. And, and, and set so, it up. Yeah, 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 set it up. But in those days, in those early days, no, I mean, they they just had runners and they had some people who, who would sort of um, do some selling or whatever. But, you know, they were not shoemakers.
0: When you started to do 900 million a year in sales in America alone, were there other brands then at this point coming to you to look to, look to acquire you?
1: Not at that time, no. I don't think anybody looked to acquire Reebok. I think Reebok were looked upon as the, you know, they're growing. So nobody came along. I mean, we became number one. We overtook Nike, we overtook Adidas, and became number one uh, global shoe brand. We're doing about four billion.
0: Four billion. Yeah. And what year was that?
1: We're talking late eighties. I say eighty, eighty-eight, eighty-nine.
0: Yeah, the year I was born. So 33, 34 years ago. So, tell me about how this because this is an institutional shoe. This.
1: Yeah. It's, it's now. It's this, this.
0: This was on every kid that I went to school with. Right. We, all, we all had a pair of Reebok Classics. Yeah. Everyone in the UK has had. It, everyone I know from, from my from my childhood had a pair of Reebok Classics. I still see them everywhere now. Who came up with this concept for the Reebok Classic, and how was it
1: born? Well, really, all the Reebok Classic did was to combine the soft leather that we'd now developed for the uh, for the aerobics, yeah. and put that onto a classic uh, onto uh, say a road training shoe and uh, and and then it became street just like with with adidas they used to do training shoes and all the kids used to buy the nike the the adidas training shoes it became street and, and this just became uh, such a big big business because uh, the soft leather made the difference right now unfortunately these are not made out of the same soft leather right <laughs> i, I I do have pairs. These are soft you can see you can see the difference between the leather you've got, yeah, and this, yeah, hundred percent. That that yeah,
0: that's why, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, see, this is where obviously this as the brand's been taken over, well, things have, have changes yeah. that that you wouldn't do. But I now you now I see that soft leather on the toe of yours. Yeah. I I remember my shoes being like that because what what type of leather, what's that is just a a, a different kind of quality, isn't yeah. it altogether? Yeah, yeah.
1: That is a split leather. Um, I doubt that's a grain. I think it's more printed. They they paint it very heavily. I mean, if you look inside your shoe, it's lined. Right. Your shoe will have a fabric liner. Yeah. You know, they never had fabric liners. You didn't need a fabric liner. It's uh, because that that's what helps it give some substance to it.
0: And and how close is this? This classic now that I'm wearing, this modern classic, how close is that in design to the way it was like the original? Has it has it changed much? or is No,
1: it, very much the same.
0: Very much the same construction. Yeah, same.
1: I mean, this, this is the sole that I designed. It's changed slightly because, you know, they just have different techniques. But this is the sole I designed in 1977.
0: How proud must you be then to walk down the street, Julie, wherever you are out in the world seeing people wearing these and knowing that you designed that.
1: Well it's I mean it is incredible when you when you think about it but I've had a long time to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know I mean it's not always <laughs> <going to> happened <laughs> yesterday it's, it's been a long time since it started and yeah I'd like to see more. In fact we will see more now that now that ABG have got the brand. You know, we'll, yeah, will. And Adidas have moved over. It'll come out from under the shadows and we'll see more
0: before we go into 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 you selling it and and everything like that i just want to touch upon this cuz not many podcasts include this but i think it's so important it's like how important has it been for you to have someone like julie sit in the background and support you and 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 facilitate all you for all this growth because not a lot of not a lot of people hear about that hear about you know the wives that sit there in the background as well and and help and and
1: get everything going so just talk me through that well yeah, uh it didn't start that way. I mean, what has happened? I wrote the book. I've since writing the book. There's been such a demand now; it's sort of come on. So now we're selling Joel Foster, right? <coughs> and if it wasn't for Julie, we wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> you right. know, she makes all the arrangements. People, uh, you know, I mean, now that we have uh, smartphones and you know, Instagram, all this, people are now making contact, and Julie picks up the contacts. We talk backwards and forwards, and Julie. Then she keeps the whole diary, sets the whole diary up, and uh, I go along and I speak to you. Well, I mean, right now, in a couple of days' time, I'm eighty-seven, so I don't have the same energy that I had when I was thirty or forty. You, you need energy, and so I go along now. Julie drags me into places and sit down, speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well it's, it's good though because I think I think a lot I think
0: a lot of people like obviously Julie's since you've been together then. Yes. Julie's encouraged you to tell your story, come on podcasts like this and other people's podcasts and stuff, and really tell your story, which helps a lot of young entrepreneurs and young people who, who aspire to you know, to take a to take a brand from zero concept, to get them to turn over four billion a year. You,
1: you know what I mean? That's 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 a hell of a lot of hell well, of a lot of movement. Well I mean, I say there's an awful lot of luck in there, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> and you do get luck, you know. Some people say, well, if you stay around long enough, you know, you're, you're there and uh, you're there at the right time, which which happened for Reebok, you know. The fact that running became such a big thing in America, got us into America. But if running had not happened at that time, you know, if it had been ten years later, maybe we wouldn't have happened. Nothing would have happened. Would I have still been around yeah. at that time? So and all, there has to be a lot
0: of luck. Then there has to be a lot of luck. You believe that, yeah?
1: Oh, I believe that. Yes. Some things happen, and it, and some things you've got a lot of bad luck. But like we say, bad luck is usually sort of uh, thought of as problems, and that's when you turn your problem around you know, and turn the luck into it. You know, turn it into lucky. So having having problems can be good because it can turn things around. Uh, but certainly good timing. And good time, you it's that like good luck, and largely, yes, it's good luck, yeah you know, the fact that running came up in America, runners world became a big magazine that everybody it just it, so, it, you, so we became visible,
0: but you still had to have the ingenuity to go and catch the waves that you caught. So even though even though yeah there was quite a lot of lucky breaks, but I believe everyone has has lucky breaks in business. You yeah. have to, like you say, but you still manage to catch those waves and ride those waves. And when doing, and it's and it's 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 no small feat to go from 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 nine million, to, well even from zero to four billion. Do you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. an amazing it's amazing journey. What in in your estimation, from zero to four billion, how many years was that as a business?
1: Uh, to 4 billion that's what we we're talking about um, mid 80s and if uh, <coughs> say from 60 to mid 80s that's 25 <coughs> 25 26 years
0: 25 26 years yeah so so that that in itself identifies of why you have to stay the path of what you're on and, 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 and right. be relentless with it yeah, quarter of a century yeah. when talk to me about when the when the offer came in to acquire the business and how that kind of came about
1: well, the offer didn't come into to acquire the business. the option was how do we how do we get uh take advantage of aerobics? How do we do that right what is what is going to be the answer you know and the the answer was uh, we need money paul feynman he didn't have money, we didn't have money, but we do Somebody you did
0: and how and how much money did you equate needing to expand into that market?
1: We didn't because we don't we weren't looking for a figure. This, was, this wasn't a financial uh, sort of an agreement. Right. What we wanted was a, an open credit line so that as we expanded, the credit would just come in. So it was just, just a matter of being able to get the product and pay for it. When, when you're turning
0: over that amount of money though, Joe, isn't it quite easy to go to any big major bank and, and get a credit line?
1: When you're doing it, yes. But to get there, to start there... Right, okay. okay, okay. okay. Yeah. You know, the banks need collateral. And Paul Feynman had a bit, I had a bit, but uh, we need, we didn't have the collateral that would satisfy a bank. That okay, you know, you, you've got uh, things that would sort of repay this money. No, we we needed uh, a businessman, and we got Stephen Rubin.
0: Um, and Stephen Rubin was was who to, was who back then.
1: So back then he was he was pendling back then, and he was uh, his. Uh, I would say his biggest uh, income would probably be as, um, as someone who sourced products in the Far East, and that's what he did. He sourced product. His company, one of his companies called Asco, right. sourced product out of Korea, and so in sourcing that he uh, he had a percentage. He had so much on on, on the product. Maybe I don't know, 10p, 50 p whatever per product. He, he would take. Um, And that made him money, but also he uh, he owned a couple of brands. He owned L S. He still does. Uh, In fact, uh, the uh, Sporting Goods Intelligence, they at the time when everything was really at the top, they called us Numero Uno. They called Nike Eager Beavertons because they came from Beaverton. Eager Eager Beaverton, and uh, Stephen Rubin was called Mister Sneaker. Because he, he he actually once had the opportunity to buy Adidas, and turned it down. Does he does he count that as one of his biggest regrets? I haven't asked him. I I, I think he probably wouldn't. No, I think I
0: th- I think everything that's meant for you happens for you anyway as a, as yes. a natural byproduct of you of, of you being in this world. Yes what when you when you so when you're acquiring this- um this credit line to get this capital to obviously scale it to the four billion what at what point in turnover were you were you looking for this credit line like fifty million hundred million or what were you turning over then
1: uh, I don't think anybody wants to put a figure on it but I know that Paul fame would said that uh, we owe we all Stephen twenty million and he's getting a bit worried right yeah that that, a lot that, more. Must, that must have grown a lot more. It's a hell of a, a hell of a lot. Yeah. Well, if you think that uh, Stephen Roomin is now, he's JD Sports, and JD Sports uh, are a seven billion pound operation now. So they've grown. That is mad. Yeah. That is mad.
0: And you and him, you and him, are still friends today.
1: We, uh, yeah, we exchange
0: emails. He's read my book. That's good. That's good. That's no, yeah. good. Yeah. No, he he he's done. He's smashed it because obviously, like he's he's now all over Australia. Um, I don't know if he's gone into the American market yet, but I know he, he has gone into yeah. the American market.
1: In fact, he's done a deal with Reebok now for Europe and America. That's mad in USA. So he's got a good deal going with uh, with them. It's mad. There's, there's,
0: when you think about when you think about the Northern England and the brands that have come out of Northern England, it's, it's quite astounding to see some of the global brands that have come oh, out of the Northern England. Absolutely, yes. Right. Yeah. So, in, in regards to like, obviously, when you got this credit line, you had to give away equity for that, right? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: What kind of piece of equity did you have to give away to get this credit line?
1: Well, I gave the whole. I did the whole deal because, as far as I was concerned. Um this wasn't about Joe Foster. This was about Reebok, so you gave away hundred percent right then yeah yeah for for a cash for a cash exit, well, no, yeah, to make sure that Reebok grew. Reebok had to, to have that opportunity uh for me, that was it you know we we could be a small company uh we could we would if we hadn't have taken advantage at that time of the aerobics market, if we hadn't have taken it, Reebok could have just faded.
0: But, but most people would have retained some form of some form percentage within the brand or some form of 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 royalty payment stuff. But
1: you decided to cash all chips. Well, uh, it was where, where do you go for your money? Where, where do you where do you get it? And in those days, and we're talking about um, the eighties, early eighties. Yeah, you know, the money that you can do these days and the deals you can do these days. I got a good deal. Don't don't get me wrong. You know the deal was good for me. Yeah, and. You know, whichever way anybody wants to talk now, I'm still the founder. Yeah. And I will always be the founder. And uh, how much money do you need? And so money wasn't the objective. The objective was succeeding at doing the one thing you want to do and that's get a world-leading brand.
0: I love that because you've you've clearly wanted then your whole life, since since founding that brand, all you've wanted to do is see Reebok win at all levels. Absolutely, and you forgoed a massive amount of money to make that mm-hmm. that dream a reality. To where you, where you oh. now walk around, you might walk around Portugal or South of France and see people with Reebok classics on their yeah. feet because of because you've did that deal.
1: Well, people ask me, do you regret doing things? And <clears throat> no, I don't regret. Reebok became number one. Yeah, yeah. You know, what more do you want? It's like if I hadn't have done that, would Reebok have become number one? Would you be talking to me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because we're we're trying to change something that happened in the nineteen eighties, early eighties. If we if it had changed that, maybe Reebok wouldn't have seen aerobics. Maybe you know. Yeah. So it's like trying to think that why did you do that? Well, why I did it was the purpose was to give Reebok that ultimate opportunity, and it and it worked, and that worked. So what we are talking about today is because of the choices I made. If I'd have made a different choice, maybe we might not have made it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I
0: love. I love how you, I love. It. I love it. I love the fact that you love. You loved what you were doing so much that you wanted to give it that opportunity. Yeah. So was it that was it? It was originally Adidas that 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 then came and acquired after that.
1: Adidas did in two thousand and five, but I've been retired since nineteen ninety.
0: Yeah yeah,
1: so yeah, yeah, I had nothing to do with that deal. or all, all the deal which has gone through now, which ABG have got the brand, but what ABG will do, which, which Adidas didn't do, Adidas sort of kept Reebok in the shadows. Now the, uh, because ABG are fantastic at licensing, and they, uh, they, they've actually they're making the brand visible globally. Yeah, it will be get, getting it, yeah. getting
0: it on the, getting it on the right, in the right places in the store, getting it on the right
1: athletes. We'll getting it in the stores because yeah. um, Reebok, we, we were four billion. It's been acquired by ABG, and when it's acquired by ABG for two, two and a half billion, the, the revenue, the turnover had gone from four billion down to one point five billion. So Adidas had seen it drop down that far. Yeah, now. By the end of next year, even ABG is saying that we'll be back at five billion. Just by really making it visible, available, visible throughout globally, it yeah. will be back to five billion.
0: And that's the power of having someone who's got all those, all those like marketing agencies and all that in-house, all yeah. these brands under umbrella group, and then they can push out to the push out to the mainstream and and have distribution
1: day one. Yeah, they just do deals with uh, with major, major distributors, major, major retail groups. And like JD, they've, they've done a deal there, so JD will get a good piece of money out of out of that product. And ABG, they, they'll get more, more like a royalty rather than building a brand. However, I don't know. I think if I was ABG, I'd get the brand back to five billion or maybe more. Then I'd float it as a separate brand. Because they'd not only get their money back, they could also still own more than 50% of the company.
0: Right, I love that, I love that. See, they, yeah. they, they build it to $5 billion sales, sell 50%, make their $5 billion back, so they're, at, so yeah. they're, so they're in yeah. for zero. Then they've got this brand, of 50% of a brand that's worth X amount of multiple. Well,
1: then, then, um, and, and it will grow. Uh, and These days, sport is on every street in the country. You know, we, now, it, we're fashion now. Everybody's you know Nike didn't like the idea of being a fashion company, but now they've got to accept the fact they're a yeah. fashion company. Yeah, yeah. Just like Adidas, just like Reebok and under Armour, you them, you name They're no fashion companies. But I think Reebok's gonna go big again. Really if, big. if
0: you were if you were running Reebok today, what is the biggest um deal that you'd go out and do if if you were running it today?
1: The the problem with running it today is you need to be up to date with what's what's what the market is. So you'd need to get an awful lot of market information. I mean, you know, I've had my period of time. Yep. That's why, as far as I was concerned, I wasn't worried about handing the company on. You you get to a you point...
0: Because did, you, did you did your rodeo, yeah. yeah.
1: Now, you know, the best thing I could do was to let Reebok, was, can it make the top? Can it? And it did. You know, it was brilliant. It became number one. And, uh, okay, it's, it's gone down since then. Why? humorous reasons why. Obviously not the right people at the top yep. running the brand. Um, but now it's with ABG. And Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq O'Neal loves Reebok. You know, Shaq became yep. a Reebok man right from leaving college. And so with him behind it, with a lot of people there, it's going to grow again.
0: Were you one of the, before you left the company, were you one of the ones that kind
1: of were, were responsible for putting those kind of deals together? Or was that after your time? no. no. There was uh, most of that was after my time. Yeah, and most of it was in America. For me, the the thing to do, and I had, I had this. I talked to Paul numerous times. Paul, look after America. Don't worry about the rest of the world. Just look after America, because the rest of the world, that'll come along. That yeah. will follow easy. But you know, do it right in America. And so, if so. Throughout your
0: throughout your career in tennessee as, as 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 a as CEO founder of Reebok, you've obviously learned a hell of a lot of lessons in life, Joe. That that kind of, you know, that a lot of young entrepreneurs or young people in business that listen to this podcast, you know, would would love to hear what you'd say. Is as like if you could give like five pieces of advice, Joe? Right, five pieces of advice or a few pieces of advice that your your golden nuggets in terms of you can't take anything with you when you leave, but you can just leave these golden nuggets for these people to pick up. What kind of advice would you would you would you give to the younger people out there that are trying to build brand, trying to build their, their
1: legacy in, in what they're doing? Well, the first three are fun, more fun, and a lot more fun. If you're not if you're not enjoying it, it it's difficult. Making it will if you do make it, it'd it be torture. So you've got to enjoy it. That's the most important thing you can do, enjoy it. The other thing is that today, know the technology. Know technology all the way through because you need to know. Social media, you need to know everything about it. Be in control of your media. Just know everything because that is so important because now social media is driving such a lot of business. You know, this is where it's going. So if you know that, you know, you, you're in there. But do have fun. Major thing is to have fun. <clears throat> and of course... Know your product. Like we did. We could make a five-star shoe at a time when we needed to know how to make a five-star shoe. Right. And today, whatever it is that you're doing, you've got to be top dog. You've got to know everything about it. And you're not going to be copying somebody. You've got to be looking for that white space. Right. Okay. That's so important to look for the white space, place where somebody isn't. Let people follow you. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm I'm I mean, I've 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 even
0: I've I've distilled so much knowledge from you throughout this podcast. I tell you now Joe, you I'm I'm learning a lot about myself by listening to the way that you articulate, the way that you've been on this journey, the walls that you could have hit but you've decided to go around and and you know and and the pivots you've made phenomenal. And uh, the one the one thing that really resonates with me is the fact of like 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 the love that I have for doing this and like the love that I have for my podcast and the way that I want to see it be way more than me is the way that you saw Reebok as well. And that I think that's I think that's the most beautiful thing and a
1: uh, a credit to you for for everything you've been on throughout this journey. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it and this is I think this is what shoemaker has done. Shoemaker a lot of people have read and said, "We must know more." So yeah. they want they want to come in and talk and you know, and, and hopefully, you know, it's it's not about making money. You know, we we've, we've done a couple of universities, uh, London Business School, and they're teaching MBAs, and they start off with, "What's your exit plan?" Yeah, and when they ask me, "What was your exit plan?" Jill? You didn't have one, did you? Didn't have one. No exit plan. No, we our, our mission was to build Reebok, was to get build a brand. Yeah, it's not money. Yeah, pe- pe- pe-
0: people, people, people say to me all the time. Their first question to me is, "How are you going to monetize this podcast, Frankie?" Right? <laughs> That's the first question to me. How yeah. are you going to monetize this podcast? And even though I'm, I, I know that that'll all come down the track. But the most important thing is that one, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, Good. right? Yes. And I love it. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing this on a Sunday. I wouldn't be inviting you to my house or dragging you down from Manchester <laughs> on a Sunday if I didn't love what I was doing. And right. that's that, love what you're doing and also like, just put your, put every bit of purpose and passion into, into something way beyond you. Like exactly what, exactly what you're saying. Yes. It's so important that, that people understand that and do that in everything that they're doing.
1: Well, that's how you get a successful mission because unless you're, you know, you're fully into it, unless you love it and it's your passion, you're going to find that you'll hit something which is too hard. It's got to be a passion. You can't just get round there being impassionate. It's got to be something that you love. That's why I probably would never have made a good lawyer or or, or a good accountant, <laughs> because you know they're so much into the four walls of the barriers that you know they create these things. I think you have to step outside that box and just be really passionate about whatever you're doing. And yes, yeah, you know, not every day will be fun, but you know if you get up with the idea that it's not going to be fun. And you know, your life will not be fun. you have got yeah. to get up with yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. that no, you're going to enjoy
0: today. And that's how you're living your life now. It, oh, yeah. Because obviously, we were talking me and Julie before the podcast about the fact of like how you're, you're digital nomads, You're here, there, you're everywhere. Yes. But because because you because you because you're here, there, and everywhere now, you 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 enjoy enjoying life because you don't necessarily know what's around the next turn. Don't you? Don't have everything. You know. We'll, well,
1: there are no plans. No, we're just following the yeah. uh, the journey. The the road is leading us, and we're happy to go along yeah. and enjoy it.
0: I Love it, Joe. I love it. And if guys, if you want to get Joe's book, it's it, it's it's obviously going to be a link on this on the page or on this podcast to go and buy the buy the book. And Joe, thank you again for your for your time and 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 everything. Like I just I loved it.
1: It's loved a it. pleasure. It's a pleasure. Any time you will be a friend now, of course. And, uh, yeah, we are. We'll of course, we're, in, of course yeah, we're friends. Of course, we'll keep serious. in contact. Yeah, you
0: are. 100%, 100%. And guys, get the get the book. Um, judge, I think you sell signed editions on your website as well, don't you?
1: We do on the website. You can send. You have to send direct to uh, the website that we have and uh, you can get a signed book. You
0: get a signed yeah. one. And also on the back of this podcast, I have got for you guys as listeners... Um, Depend on when you see this or listening to this. If you listen to it six months down the track, good luck. But I'm giving away um, four or five pairs of shoes that are going to be signed by Joe today um, to everyone that listens and shares this podcast and and really helps us get it out there to more people. And we we like, subscribe, we all appreciate it. And if you could do me a solid favour as well, when, when you listen to this podcast and you see the infinite wisdom that Joe shared throughout his journey, if you could do me a solid favor and send me a message, send Joe a message, leave us a review on Apple, leave us a comment on YouTube, share it. That all helps and we'd appreciate it. So, uh, again, that's Joe Foster. That's the founder of Reebok and much love. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe.
1: Love you, Frankie. Don't forget to subscribe to the Frankie Lee Podcast.